you know, even though, you know, I've got nothing against any of them, you know, I couldn't really sit here now and, and say because I've seen that much of boxing, I know that styles make fights and and uh, they've been brought up the, the traditional ways in how to box from, you know, in America, they know, how to, they know exactly how to cheat you, how to box in, in, every, in every style. You know, in Britain, we're a bit, you know, behind the time, so... You know, it's a bit different, but I think that'd be a fan. I think that's the fight to make. You know, I can't. I right, listen. Mm. If you if you want to sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me, and you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. When I fought Hatton, I knocked Hatton out with ten hours gloves on, stepping back when he was undefeated. In my prime, I spanked him. Yeah, How did he gonna cool. be as equally talented as me? Are you serious? As easy as I beat him. I could have beat him while playing chuckles on the other side. That's how easy that was. <laughs> and he better than us? Are you no. serious, James Tony? They call me the problem, but you could call me the can man, because anybody can get it. Africans, Americans, Dominicans, Mexicans, anybody can get it. You don't see my eyes that this is going to be your toughest fight. Your game. eyes? You know. For your eyes is messed up. How am I seeing your eyes? And well, you see know. Come on, let's be serious. Let's be serious. You know. On, you know. Let's be serious. You know. Well, well, you will. Hey guys and welcome to Beyond Boxing and it's a it's a pretty emotional day for me and the nature of the day and the nature of the topic we're going to discuss I guess kind of tie in for, for one of those rare occasions where I get to talk about two things I'm really passionate about. So one of them is obviously Fitzroy Lodge where I kind of became the boxing person I am today and the second one is the coaching and training of fighters. So to... Me and a lot of the guys from the lodge, this is the ninth anniversary of the passing of Mick Carney and like a lot of our reference points in boxing probably come from a combination of Mick Carney, Billy Webster and a few others. But for me, I sort of arrived at the lodge at the tail end of Billy's time there. So I arrived in 04. And so I never really got to see either Mick or Bill in their peak, but I got to see them kind of when they'd mellowed and, you know, there were those wise old heads of boxing. And through them, I learned so much about what to do right and what to do wrong. And so every year, this is just a chance for myself and the other Lodge guys, you know, Mark, Simon, Charlie, you know, the alumni, Nigel Travis, Eddie Lamb, Adam Martin, uh, Roy Connor, Mick Gilfoyle. And, you know, all the old guys, you can go all the way back. You can talk about guys like Ed Robinson, you know, we can talk about all of these guys, Johnny Harris, the actor, and all, all of us kind of stop at this point and we just reminisce and we're grateful, A, that we all know each other, B, that Mick put it all together and C, that Mick taught us the right way to be in boxing, which then translates into the right way to be in life. So I did just want to pause for a second and just pay tribute to him because from 2004 till we lost him in 2011, Mick was always the guy whose approval you wanted. You always just wanted that pat on the shoulder to know that Whatever it is he wants you to do that day, you've done it well. And I don't think you have people like Mick anymore, people who live, breathe, and dedicate themselves to to helping subsequent generations and being true custodians of the sport. So I did just want to take a few seconds just to pay tribute on his anniversary to Mick Carney. And also just a, a nod to all the other guys who are like Mick. And it's not just Mick Carney. So if you were to go up to Sheffield people would say the same thing about Glenn Rhodes. If you're going to go down to Bristol, they'd say the same about Jamie Sanagar. If you go down to the East End, people talk about 
Jimmy Tibbs, people pay tribute to Mickey Mayer at West Ham. Um, Tony Burns at a Repton. Uh, you've still got guys out of uh, Dale Youth like Mickey Delaney. Um, Angry Steve out of Power Day Hooks. I never remember his surname. And you've got, you've got some of these old stages who are still around. Um, shout out to Charlie Rumble Sr. as well. Great man. These are real boxing people, real old school guys that when they're gone, I don't think we'll be able to replace them. So let's pay tribute to those that have passed and let's enjoy those who are still with us now. And I think it's just important just for me at a time like this, just to pay tribute to the guys who share their values with us and share their experiences with us so that we could build on those and hopefully take boxing to another level. But the main thrust of today actually is just to discuss what Kel Brooks said in his post-fight interview. And it didn't feel to me, it didn't feel like he intended to let it slip the way he did. But I found it really interesting. I think it's quite informative in terms of his relationship with Dominic Ingle, with John Fuchs and so forth, that Kel made the statement that you heard in the intro and it were two things struck out for me, or stuck out, I should say. Number one is that his reference to the Americans being versed in so many different styles, almost like they're taught these mythical styles that we're never taught. And then the second one was that British boxing is behind the times. And I think the reality is somewhere between his two statements, but I don't think he's wrong in what he said. But I think what he said comes from a space of when you've come up and you've met Brendan Ingle and you've been trained by Brendan Ingle and you've had conversations with Brendan Ingle, which I have done on those few occasions. And when I was a student, I probably should have gone up to Winkerbank a bit more, but yeah, that part of Sheffield, when you're a student, that part of Sheffield kind of sucks apart from like the Sentertainment and Meadow Hall and that sort of part, like Winkerbank's not really somewhere you want to go because I think it's just off Matacliff, which was the sex district in Sheffield at the time. So that lets you know the sort of environment that it was. But when you speak to guys like Brendan, what you took away from that was they had seen so much more. And I, I sort of look at it now and I go, he had seen so much more in terms of diversity of background style stories than we see in boxing now. It's, it tends to have narrowed down around a certain orthodoxy, which is the British way. If we, if we look at most British sport, we tend to try and operationalize things and go, let's create a formula that will give us the same output every time, right? British cycling, British rowing. Um, what else are we reasonably good at? I'm sure we're good at archery and shooting. All these things that require expensive equipment. It's great for British sport because you can over-engineer things. And what happens is we see the success cycling has and then we over-engineer things. Like we, and we take it to other sports and we say, you've got to get in early and you've got to do this and this only. You've got to be a hyper-specialist and all this sort of stuff. Whereas when you talk to the old-timers, this guy was subtly different from that guy for these reasons this guy had a different approach in that approach and so they had such a deep bank of knowledge to tap into and they used it to their advantage so I can understand that if Kel goes from Brendan sort of being that that man of diverse influences to them being trained by Dominic who isn't by the way who isn't and in in Sheffield training circles he's not that highly regarded if he wasn't an Ingle he wouldn't have any fighters yeah, that's, yeah, I don't think that's that's in question. And then you go from that to John Fuchs, who 
isn't Glyn Rhodes, and that's no disrespect to John. He'll find his own voice in time. But you talk to Glyn Rhodes, Glyn Rhodes has seen everything. And so I think Kel's sharing that frustration of why have I never had a trainer teaching me some of these things? I was ready to learn. And maybe that's why Kel fell off the rails, because he felt he had learned everything and this was it for him. And no one had shown him that there was another level that he could attain, which is why we talk about Kel being an unfulfilled talent. But I want to talk about this this UK versus US training approach and maybe bring in some other cultures as well just to see if we can understand what we're doing right or what we're doing wrong in this country. And it's not an easy thing to do because there are exceptions in every situation. Do you see what I mean? They're, they're pretty progressive minds in British boxing. Adam Booth springs to mind. Shane McGuigan springs to mind. And just like they're very regressive guys in the United States, you know, they, you know, they have their own trainers where they're not respected. But generally, those guys don't get any airtime outside of their home state. Whereas I think with Britain being the size of some US states, you know, you, you can kind of get a media profile, you can get out, even if you're not that good. So my experience of being trained in the US and working with US trainers and being around US trainers echoes a lot of what Roy Jones once said. And I'm just going to share the clip with you so you can understand. And I think this will form the basis of much of what I say today. A lot of guys, even when I train right now, they come to my gym and I'm going to spend time, repetitious time like I did, on technique. They don't like it. They just want to beat bags, beat hand mitts, spar. Well, how can you do all this if you don't know the real technique that it takes to do it? So that's what's happening. We're missing all that because soon you come to the gym, first thing you want to do is hit something. In our day, it wasn't like that. You knew what kind of fighter you were. You knew how to jab. You knew how to throw a right hand. You knew how to throw every, throw every punch. You knew how to counter every punch. You knew how to defend every punch. You knew boxing from here. Then here. Now you learn it from here. When I first went to the United States to train, it was in Gleason's in New York. And the first guy I ever worked with was Mark Breland. And this is, God, this is years ago. And it was just then I was getting to grips with how Mick Carney and Billy Webster did things. And thank God I'd met Mick and Bill before because one of the things they do is they just make you hit the wall bag. For the first six months, I think I was just a slow learner. But generally, you'll spend months hitting the wall bag, perfecting each punch. And you can't graduate to the bags until you've done that. And then once you've graduated to the bags, you've got to show that you're still technically sound, but you've got the stamina to do round after round. And that includes head movement. That includes all the stuff. Like once you're competent enough, you might get Billy Webster on the pads. And if you can't move your head, you're going to break your nose because he was pretty merciless on the pads. But that kind of tough, old school approach of just repetition, doing the stuff you don't want to do, served me well when I went over to train with guys like Breland and Sean Ray's a God rest his soul. Because that's what they do in the United States. We don't see it because we see their fighters come out. But from when they're kids, they do the really dull, boring stuff. It's it's almost military in terms of, you know, jabs gotta be perfect, backhands gotta be perfect, hooks have gotta be perfect, uppercuts have gotta be perfect, your head movement, your defense. And you've gotta know intellectually if someone throws a jab, what you're gonna counter with. And it's not just one answer. It's okay, in situation X, I'll do this. In situation Y, I'll do this. And you teach this. It's not enough to just teach the, the repetitious aspects of it. You've got to teach the, the knowledge that comes with it, the decision-making that comes with it. 
And these two go hand in hand. And I think in America, they really drive this home. Whereas in this country, we don't. Most trainers in this country, most coaches in this country are happy if you can just throw a jab. They've done their job. If I can give you a little boxing award certificate to say he can throw a jab, that is enough. But you're wasting those crucial years when the mind is receptive to everything. And you're missing that opportunity to put the knowledge and wisdom in. Which the Americans don't seem to do. In, in Young American boxers seem to be so literate in terms of what they're supposed to do. That they're, they're more mature from a boxing perspective than their British counterparts. That doesn't mean that they're going to win in tournaments because the style doesn't lend itself to winning in tournaments because it's it's not a basic high work rate style like we have in GB, for example. But what it does do is it prepares you. It's You're investing in your pro career from when you're 10 years old. So what you tend to find when you're in American gyms is even guys who've never had a pro fight are super skilled, super slick, can make great decisions, understand where they are in the ring. And that's why they have such great sparring partners. And, you know, it's guys we don't know. Guys you don't even find on box rec. It'll just be a guy who might have won the Golden Gloves when he was 15 and then took up a job driving trucks. And he just likes to box when he's got some downtime. But he's still a good sparring partner because he did his education so well growing up that he can never be lost in a boxing ring. And you struggle to find the equivalent in this country because we don't teach that. We get you over the line. That's what happens in British coaching. We just get you over the line. Yeah. Oh, you got the ABAs coming up. We'll get you to the ABAs. Oh, then you got to box in this tournament in Dublin. Oh, we'll just get you over the line for that. There's no bigger picture. There's none of this that says, look, by the time you're 18, you are going to be the most complete boxer this country's ever produced. I'm going to come back to Kel Brook because if you think about Kel, Kel's probably as skilled and as complete a boxer as we've produced in the last 20 years. I don't think there's a question about that. In terms of skill set, in terms of the fact that his timing's pretty good, his technique's pretty good, his movement's pretty good, Kel's there. But it's very one-dimensional, and I think that's down to Dominic Ingle. He's very one-dimensional, and if that one thing doesn't work for Kel, he falls apart, and he falls apart spectacularly. Now look at his opponent, Crawford. If Crawford wants to stand and trade with you, which he did in his previous fight, he'll stand and trade with you. If he wants to play the, the timing battle and catch you coming in, like he did with Kel, he'll play that too. If he just wants to pick you apart, he can do that too. And what I like most about Crawford is it seems like he makes that decision in the ring based on what he sees. And I don't think there's another British boxer that can do that. And you think how much money we spend on things like Team GB and you think how many people on social media on Twitter will tell you they're boxing coaches now look on your Instagram and see how many guys you see with this licensed coach attached to their Twitter handle and you tell me how the hell we're not producing that maybe it's because our coaches are good at what they do but what they do isn't good enough this is the point where if I'm a boxer now I'm sharing this episode with my friends and I'm saying is your trainer any good? Because right now I ain't feeling that I'm getting the education I need. And that's really the only question we're asking here, especially if you're a, a prospect on the way up. Are you getting your education? Yes or no? So we come back to this whole thing of are we behind the times? 
Pretty much in every way, yes. And I know I want to get responses back going, but look at the advances we've made in nutrition, diet, strength, and conditioning. And I'll say, that's true, but in a 12-round fight, what impact do those really have? If we're being honest, like whether whether you eat your steak with the fat on or the fat off, is that going to make you a 12-round fighter? I don't think it is. Whether you bench press 100 kilos or 150 kilos, is that going to make you a better fighter? Yes, I don't think it is. It'll make you a better athlete, by all means, but I don't think it translates directly into fighting. So when I see guys deadlifting 200 kilos and those sorts of things, and I'm saying to myself, what's that really doing for you? The answer is absolutely nothing. When I see guys doing these box jumps, throwing the weights down, does nothing for you. When you've got the resistance bands around the knees and you're activating your glutes, does nothing for you in the ring. Does it make you a more rounded athlete? Yeah, but you're a professional boxer. Like, what are you going to do? Go and play in the British Basketball League? I don't think so. So people aren't realistic about what value they're getting. And what that means is people prey on the insecurity, right? Strength and conditioning coaches prey on that insecurity. And what they do is they get their program that they've got for this rugby player and they scale it down for a box and they go, just do less weights. But actually, none of it's boxing specific. So there's no carryover. I watch, I, listen, yeah, I watch a lot of guys train and I, I tell them 80% of what you're doing is a waste of time. Now, if it makes you feel better, then do it. I remember I'd always talk to, to JP and JP will tell me this is what I have to do before a fight. And now I know it doesn't really add any value to what he does in the ring. But I know psychologically it lets him know that he's ready. So I don't disrupt that. And that's fine. I'd be wary of someone coming in preaching a new gospel in terms of strength and conditioning to him. Nah, not my place. But I see this all the time. Everyone's, everyone's so good on the strength and conditioning front. Hill sprints, 17-mile runs, all this sort of bullshit that I see. But then when it comes down to how are your skills, your skills don't improve year on year. I watch the guys that I've seen come up through the amateurs and they haven't moved on. They haven't moved on because they haven't been educated. Not because they're not willing. They're not lazy. They haven't been educated because the person that's taking the 10% every fight isn't capable of educating them, isn't capable of taking them to that next level. So that's why you hang around with the trainer. Then you suddenly realize you haven't learned anything for three years and you move on. But by then it's too late. So my, my thing with the fighters I know and the fighters I work with and I advise in the shadows and so forth are very simple. I encourage them to educate themselves so they can go back to their trainer and say, why don't we work on this? Why don't we do these scenarios? But in Britain, trainers are such dictators that their mindset is, do it my way or just leave, which I don't understand, right? You know, most trainers haven't had spectacular boxing careers, me included. So who are we to tell someone who has had a spectacular boxing career that they can't have an input into the direction of their career? That's absolutely crazy. But this happens a lot. This is what happens. And so you look at guys and you get to British level pretty quickly, right? English level, British level, you get there pretty quickly. And you can get there by being fit, by being strong and having your good basics. But you're going to fall apart at European level. Ted Cheeseman did. Frank Bullioni did. 
Um, all these guys fall apart, but they're really, they're really good technicians. There's no question about that. Ted's a good technician. He proved it as an amateur. Frank proved it as an amateur. They're good technicians. So how have they fallen apart when it gets to that level? How have they fallen apart when the big ticket fights come along? And the answer is lack of education. The person in front of them showed them something they've never seen before and had never prepared for. Now, American fighters, and to an extent, Eastern European fighters, are like, no, no, I know what's happening here. This guy's changing. He's now trying to bait me in. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to dare him to come to me, and then we're going to play my game. Or you might see it and go, well, actually, he doesn't think I'm going to take the bait. I'm going to take the bait, but I'm going to keep my head on his chest. I'm going to see if that works. Or you might just go, well, the right hand isn't working. So how about I try the right uppercut, see if I can get through that way. And then I can scare him enough that then the right hand will work. And I see American boxers making these adjustments from every age group. Their defense, they understand what defense is. All these small things. And, and it's not like American coaches are this, this single flavor of boxing coach. Like, There's so many different philosophies in the US. And a lot of times these guys don't agree with each other. But what they do is they listen to each other, they take from each other, and they prepare. And they make sure that once they've seen that style, they know how to deal with it. And then you just, there, it's locked in the bank. And that's the difference. And so this is what I'm going to start to zero in on when we say what makes the American coaches different. The level of knowledge sharing, the level of network integration between American coaches is light years ahead of British coaches. And I'm going to talk about why afterwards, but I'm going to illustrate it by looking at Mike Tyson's career. So I'm going to apologise in advance to one of the guys I train, Young Hamza, because I'm about to butcher the list of Mike Tyson trainers because I've got, I've got to do this off the top of the head, which is going to be a nightmare. So the ones I can remember, obviously Customato, Teddy Atlas, Kevin Rooney, Aaron Snowell, and I think we go to Rich Giacchetti, uh, Tommy Brooks, Stacey McKinley, put Ronnie Shields in there, and Freddie Roach. I'm sure I've missed one or two out. But look at that name. Look at the names of people you have associated with Mike. Right? So if you look at Customato, for example, you can link Cus to any number of old school trainers. Guys like Slim Jim Robinson, you can link him to... You can link him to Angelo Dundee. You're linking Customato with the greats. And what I mean by that is they interacted. They, they shared camps. They went to each other's gyms and they shared ideas and they talked. Those three guys, and I know people won't know who Slim Jim Robinson is, but he's worth looking up because in terms of Philadelphia, he's boxing royalty. Obviously, we know who Angelo Dundee is and we know who Customato is. But imagine those three sharing ideas and experience. All three of them end up being better for it. So... That's how greatness was achieved. And then you look at Teddy Atlas and you look at the guys Teddy Atlas has interacted with. So obviously you see Teddy Atlas came up under Cuss. So he had the same access to the same guys. And Teddy's working with guys like Kevin Rooney. You know, so you start to see these networks forming in boxing. And then just to, to show you the circle. So look at Aaron Snowell. So Aaron Snowell, I think, is out of Philadelphia. So he grew up not far from, I think it's Deer Park, where Muhammad Ali used to train in Pennsylvania. So he came up under Angelo Dundee, Slim Jim Robinson. I think he knew Customato as well. And this guy was training Mike like, in his late 
20s or early 30s. He was a young man training Mike, but he had been in the game since the mid-70s. So he had a, he had that access. He was getting that knowledge early. And I think he had, he had Frankie Randall. So if, if Ed Muscat's listening to this, I know you had a poster that had Frankie Randall on there. This young man trained Frankie Randall like in his early 20s or something. So now you start to see these networks build up. So, so Aaron Snowell's had all of this knowledge come down from the from the Philadelphia side. He's had the knowledge coming from Angelo Dundee and the Miami side, and then Customasa with the with the New York side of things from Catskills. So all that knowledge in a young man before he's even allowed to train. The same with Rich Giacchetti. Rich Giacchetti came up. I know he was Don King's kind of guy, but he came up kind of through Ohio and then through Pennsylvania, and then he got given Larry Holmes and so forth, and he built. So now you're starting to see that Mike became this lightning rod for all these really good trainers to come together and share knowledge and experience. And you can move forward into guys like Stacey McKinley. So you had Stacey McKinley, who is known for being Emmanuel Stewart's assistant at the Cronk, and he had his own fighters. Uh, don't even ask me off the top of my head. Guys like Michael Mora, a Stacey McKinley guys. And he took Michael Mora from a light heavyweight to a heavyweight. And we know what Michael's career was like. So then Stacey McKinley now works with Ronnie Shields. We all know Ronnie Shields because of Jamal Charla, Aristandi, Lara now. But now you look at Ronnie Shields and you go, okay, so where did Ronnie Shields come from? Ronnie Shields is a Texan. When he was boxing as a pro, I think he was based out of Texas pretty much. His career wasn't spectacular, but he was considered one of the all-time great American amateurs. And had Sugar Ray Leonard not existed, he'd have probably gone to the Olympics and won a gold. That's how good an amateur he was. I think he was 241 fights and 21 losses, or 241 wins and 21 losses. That's an absolutely insane record. And so as a young man, he was given a chance to work with Lou Duva and George Benton. Now, George Benton links to Slim Jim Robinson out of Philadelphia because those guys fought each other and they were friends and they shared knowledge and ideas. So that comes down. And then the line from Lou Duva as well. So let's not forget Lou Duva's an old school trainer as well. And so Ronnie Shields is getting that exposure and he's being given a chance to train the 1984 Olympic squad now that they've all turned pros. That's Evander, that's Virgil Hill, that's Pernell Whitaker. That's Meldrick Taylor. He's already getting that experience as a young man. And so he goes on to train some of these guys, goes on to train Vernon Forrest. Goes on to train David Tour, if I remember correctly. And he trained him for the fight with Lennox Lewis. So look at all these trainers. And all of a sudden you're seeing that they're all around each other and they're all getting access to that knowledge. We know Freddie Roach came up under Eddie Fudge. And Eddie Futch is one of the all-time great trainers, from whatever you want to say, from Joe Frazier all the way to Riddick Bowe. Eddie Futch has proved himself. And so what you're seeing is all these small networks that tie in together, where the knowledge is being shared. You tell me how you solve this problem, or you tell me how you solve this problem. And, you know, a lot of this all links back to someone like an Emmanuel Stewart, who in his own gym, like we said, had Stacey McKinley, had Bill Miller. Those three in themselves could probably walk into the Hall of Fame. Then you look at the Philadelphia side, Gaza Bowie Fisher. Who's his, who was his assistant? Nazim Richardson. So when Bowie Fisher was training Bernard Hopkins in the early 2000s, it was Nazim Richardson that saw that Felix Trinidad was wrapping his hands in a shady manner. And that's what made him suspicious for the Shane Mosley situation. 
with Margarita. So now look at the knowledge sharing that's happening in America amongst elite American trainers because what happens in America is there's enough money in these fights that I'm going to get the best three trainers I can for my corner. My head trainer is my head trainer. So if I'm Jamal Charlo, Ronnie Shields is my head trainer. But I might, I might get a Greg Hackett in from Philadelphia who's got his own fighters, but they're at a certain level. I'm like, listen, you can come to the world title level and be an assistant here, and it's valuable. Well, I can go and I can get a Mark Breland to be my assistant. It's worth it. And what you do is you get three sets of experience, three ways to solve these problems. That's game-changing. And what it means is the knowledge stays in the sport. The knowledge and experience and the wisdom always stays in the sport because these networks keep feeding into each other. And so it creates this collective knowledge in American boxing that is light years ahead of where we are. And it's not because they're doing anything magical. They just all work together. But I'll come back to Ronnie Shields because I think Ronnie Shields is the best example of this because (laughs) there's a guy, what's he from? From Port Arthur, Texas probably trains just out of Houston now, not a notorious fight city in the United States at all. But you look at his CV and you go, you've trained Evander, you've trained Virgil Hill, you've trained Vernon Forrest, you know, in the modern day you've trained the Charlo brothers, you've known them since they were 10 years old. What what, What more do you have to do? You had Effie Jagba just to bring up to the modern era, I know they've recently split. But this is a guy who's seen it all and he's been in so many different camps that his knowledge is invaluable. So if you're a young trainer, you want to work as his assistant because you're going to get that knowledge. And then in America, what you also have is you have the outliers too. This is what I love about America because you've got the knowledge sharing and then you've got the outliers. But then the outliers also are worthy of respect and the outliers would also make something special in the UK so you look at the Birmingham brothers so I think it's Dan and Brian Birmingham and they used to run a club called St. Pete's and this was in the 80s along with I think it's like Alan McLaughlin who I can't remember the names here but they ran it without St. Petersburg Florida not a boxing hotspot at all in the 80s right they run a club called St. Pete's and out of that club came Jeff Lacey and came what's the other guy the Southpaw, Winky Wright. They produced that. They were winning Golden Glove after Golden Glove after Golden Glove out of nowhere. Three guys who had different views on boxing but had a passion to succeed. And it's that sharing of knowledge that makes a difference. And it's weird to explain how that works, but when you get that, and you seem to get that a lot in America, and these guys weren't really plugged into the mainstream of boxing training, but over time they they became plugged in. You know, you see all of these things. I think one of the examples I read recently was Stacey McKinley's now back and he's working with with Kevin Cunningham, who is most famous for training, training Devin Alexander, obviously. And then more recently, he's worked with Broner, Javante Davis, now that he's moved down to Florida. So once you get someone like Stacey McKinley and you're getting that experience in, that you can feed off as well, and all the trainers you work with can feed off that. We don't get that in the United Kingdom. But the one outlier I'd look at is there's a guy called Milton Lacroix. Google him. There's not, not much on him, but he's a really interesting case because he came to boxing really late, which I can identify with, where I think he came in his mid to late 20s. 
and he took up boxing. No idea if he ever fought or not. I don't think he did. He might have just been a sparring partner. And from that, he developed his own way of boxing. And, you know, he's a very much a, a hands-down, you know, you're slipping shots with your head, your punches are loose and they're long and they're languid, you know, conserving energy but delivering maximum power. And I think, I think it was like 96, he won five Golden Glove titles. He's gone down to Florida and he's absolutely dominating the amateur scene there because he just has that different philosophy that's quite hard to read. But his is just based on his own experience and now he starts to share that experience with others and that's going to start diffusing and enriching the overall coaching landscape in the U.S., we don't have that here. British boxing is completely different. It is, I'm going to show up, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to prove to the world that I can do it. It's a very selfish thing, which is probably born out of insecurity. It's like, I'm going to do it. So the test I have for most young fighters is when someone offers to train you, just work out where they've come up. Who did you come up under? Who taught you anything? And if you're not impressed with that, you're wasting your time. And that's why you tend to find that fighters congregate in and around the same trainers. Let's, let's have a case study. Let's take Sheffield, right? Because it's somewhere I'm reasonably close to and I understand it. So let's just look at the Sheffield training landscape for now. Sheffield slash Rotherham. Dave Caldwell. Richard Towers. Ryan Rhodes. Dom Ingle. John Fuchs, Glenn Rhodes, Grant Smith. There are more, right? I've just picked those names because they're the ones at the top of my head. How many of those guys actively work together? What I mean by that is, do these guys sit down and have dinner and talk ideas and this, that, and the other? I believe Richard probably does with a fair few guys. It's, let me just add in Chris Smedley. How, how, how dare I forget the, the great Chris Smedley. Chris is in that mix as well. And Chris is back training for... All you young fighters in Sheffield that want to get good, Chris is now back in the game. I guess my point here is, these guys don't work together, but you look at the imputed knowledge. Put Glenn Rhodes in there as well. Hopefully I'll put him in there. Look at the knowledge there is in Sheffield boxing. And it's not just one way of doing things. Everyone's got their different takes on things. And these guys rarely get together to share knowledge and make each other better. Because... It's a zero-sum game. It's almost like if I make you better, it makes me worse, which is insane. And what it almost needs, and I think Joshua's done this now, maybe not executed the right way, but it needs someone of that level to say, you know what, my head trainer's Rob McCracken, but I'm going to bring in an Angel Fernandez because he's got one way of doing things, and I'm going to bring in... Joby Clayton, he has another way of doing things. And I think Rob can take in from that, synthesize it, because he knows me better than either of those two. And we can have an approach. Now, I'd rather AJ had picked maybe like more experienced guys. Like maybe you want your Glenn Rhodes in there, the wise old heads. But I, I imagine the decision was Rob's to say, I don't want anyone to outshine me. So we're going to have these up and coming trainers, right? And they get a chance to you know, gain this exposure, this experience. I think it's enriching for Joby. I think it's enriching for Angel and it will only trickle down and benefit the fighters Angel works with. Not enough boxers do that. That's why the knowledge doesn't get shared around. Maybe the money's not big enough in boxing for that to happen. Because if you look at Dillian, it was Mark Tibbs and Xavier Miller, which worked. 
now Mark's gone, it's just Xavier, but you want someone with a bit more about them. And maybe that's why they brought Caldwell in, but you want someone in there for the whole camp to share that knowledge. And that's not to say Xavier's a bad trainer. I don't think he is. But he's relatively new to the training thing. So you want someone in there to to help enhance him. Maybe someone like a Don Charles, someone who's been there and seen it. You need that experience. And I think Americans are more open to that than we are in this country. And that's why the knowledge doesn't get shared. Because you've got Chris Medley, who knows how to create boxing machines over here. You've got Dave Caldwell, the other side of the city, who, who knows how to do the world title fights. And these guys aren't sharing knowledge and experience, mainly because I don't think they like each other. But that's the reality of it. You've got Richard Towers. Now, look at Richard. Richard went over, trained with Vladimir, took that knowledge, went with Adam Booth, took that knowledge, had the Ingle knowledge. And so he keeps learning. And what I like about that is he's now starting to synthesize it into like a Richard Towers style. And so whenever I see Rich, I always try and talk training with him because I can learn from him and hopefully he can learn from me. And that's how you get the knowledge. I know what I know about training because I used to just sit there when you'd have Mick Carney, Billy Webster, this person, that. They'd all be sat having a chat and I'd just sit there and listen. I wouldn't even get involved. I'd just listen. I'd go, oh, okay. And you're just taking that knowledge and that experience when they talk about the old stories. And I'd go, okay. And then... I'd go and speak to someone else and I'd just keep learning and learning. And then eventually I had to make it something that made sense to me. And that doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it's a start. But what I always try and do is talk to other trainers, share ideas, learn from them, hopefully help them learn. That's how we all grow together. I don't think you have that in this country. So we can never teach someone all these different approaches and styles because we don't work together well enough for that to even be a possibility. Like, in London, just London, the trainers don't get together. Like, the, the trainers I talk to are the people I know socially, not people I necessarily, you know, uh, I'd love to spend time with guys like Tox at Stonebridge, you know, I'd love to get more time with guys like Charlie Rumble Jr. You know, they're, they're guys you'd like to spend time with and talk boxing, but it's just... I don't even know why it doesn't happen, if I'm being brutally honest. I don't know. You know, even the ex-Lodge guys, I, I'll speak to Eddie Lamb every so often and just, you know, we, we fire stuff back and forth to each other. Same with Adam Martin. You know, that's the Lodge network. And then I've got my day-to-day interactions with guys like Mark, Mark Rygate, Simon Rose, and Big Linton. Do you know what I mean? I've, so you've always got that. At least we're sharing ideas. We've got different ways of doing things and we can all learn from each other. But I think also there's another big difference in America, it's called learning from each other. And I think in Britain, it's called stealing from each other. And we need to start changing this idea. Like, I don't own any ideas. I only own the way I express the ideas. If you want to take what I'm doing and do it for yourself, cool. Just have the respect to acknowledge me. That's all we ask. Have the respect to acknowledge me. And at least then you can go, do you know what? I saw him do it. I thought I'd try it and it worked. You might do it better than me but at least acknowledge where you got it from. I try and do that whenever I can. But in essence, this is what happens. Like It's such an adversarial world in boxing training that we end up having camps built around certain trainers. Joe Gallagher has his stable. Jamie Moore and Nigel Travis have their stable. The Sanigars have their stable. Um, Dom Ingle has his stable. Adam Booth has his stable. 
and you can go on and on and on. And it's this idea that they want that total control. But if you're being realistic, no one in this country is good enough that they can have that total control. In fact, what they should be doing is inviting people to come in, learn, and then you move on. When you're learning your trade, you should be allowed to just hop between different camps. You know, ideally, I'd love to be able to sit there with Joe Gallagher, sit there with Peter Fury, sit there with Adam Booth. Not necessarily like I owe them a debt of individual loyalty. I just want to learn from all of them. And then one day someone's going to want to learn from me. And I can share that. And until we get to that point, I don't think we're ever going to produce fighters as good as the Americans. And I know people are going to say, ah, oh, but we've got, we've got this, we've got that, we rule the heavyweight division. Y- yeah, but that's not an indicator of overall depth. Right? We don't have the depth. We have a few freaks. Fury, because he's been so immersed in boxing, and Fury's a legacy of growing up around fighting people. Yeah, in immersing himself in boxing to the point where he's taught himself all of this stuff. But then, you know, who's there left to teach him? That's why he's gone with Sugar Hill Stewart, because there's something to learn from that kind of, that cronk legacy. He can tap into that. You look at Joshua. What's Joshua really learned, if we're being honest? Joshua's just, he's fitter, he's stronger, he's bigger, and that's pretty much it. The stuff he was doing with Don Charles is light years ahead of what he's doing now. They, they literally regressed him. I don't know how good that version of Joshua would have been. He'd have looked better. And he would have been more entertaining. And every so often you see bits of it come out. But no one ever gives Don Charles' credit for the work he did in developing Joshua as a more rounded boxer, which is what he tried to do. And so you get all of these scenarios where you want people to come together. In fact, Don Charles might be the one guy I've seen who's actively tried to do that in boxing, where he's had guys like Tony Pill, Xavier Miller, Josh Burnham all come into his facility to learn and gain experience. And Don is so generous in sharing his knowledge. And I've learned a lot from Don Charles. He might be the one guy that gets it. And then we talk about him in terms of legacy. But overall, I think that's the difference when we talk about why the Americans so much better. Their trainers all work together in various contexts. They share ideas and they, they're more willing to work together because they understand that you move further together. Now, do they steal fighters from each other? I don't know. Like, that's something I want to ask Greg when we do episode four. Is it like it is here? Because here, fighters get stolen. Maybe it's because it's so expensive to run a gym here that you have to have a big biller somewhere. So when Dave loses Derek Chisora's fee, he's looking for someone else. So he'll tap someone else up. If you lose, you know, let's say you lose Dillian, then you're looking for someone else. Maybe you get Billy Joe in. And, and this is what it, it becomes. It becomes a business for the trainer because the trainer's like, how do I maximize my income? And that's why we end up with the fights as we do. You know, get them to a world title fight. Get your money. Forget whether they're any good or not. You've just made them super fit, super strong. They don't know what they're doing in boxing. And they've got their whole career realizing they never fulfilled their potential because they never did the education piece. And that's ultimately what I say to young fighters. Yeah, cool. You get to 10, 15 fights, well done. You got there because that's already where you were in terms of talent and maybe strength and stamina. But to have another 15 fights where you're actually making real money and winning real titles, you've got to do the education. 
Because without the education, you won't make the right decisions. And if you don't make the right decisions, you're lost in the ring against someone like a Crawford. You're lost in the ring against someone like a, I don't know, Adrian Granados, for God's sake. You'll be completely lost. Because there's only so far fitness, bottle and all this stuff can get you before you've got to have a boxing brain. The one caveat I will give you is if you look at the people you class as really great boxers, especially in the modern era, a lot of them were trained by their dads. And I find that really interesting. Roy Jones Jr. is a product of Roy Jones Sr. There's no question about that. I know we, we look at Aaron Murkison as a trainer of record when it comes to Roy, but Roy was created by his dad, and his dad had a completely different view of boxing, which is reflected in how Roy boxed. Um, Danny Garcia is another example of a guy who is very much a product of I mean, his father's upbringing and so forth. Leo Santa Cruz, another example. It's, we can't overlook sometimes the impact of that, and, you know, of a father doing something so different that a trainer doesn't have to do anything with the style. All they have to do is educate them in how to apply it in different scenarios. And that can make life easier too. But all of these things are what make American fighters different. And so that's a, that's a great way to summarize the role of a trainer. I, I think there are three elements to boxing training. Element number one is, I'm here to mold you. That's when you take someone from zero or close to zero and you build them. Then there's, I'm here to fix you. And guys like Freddie Roach are really good for that. Where they've seen so much of the sport of boxing, they can diagnose issues and propose solutions, and they can do all of that. So they can take someone who maybe hasn't adapted to boxing as an older fighter, and they can make the adjustments for them. And then there are guys who can help you rediscover who you were. And like I think Don Charles is a good example of that. Like the work he did with Bullioni and a lot of the work he does with Chisora is amazing because sometimes you can disappear down a track and forget actually here's how I used to box here's why I used to box here are all the things that were important to me when I was at my best and they can get you as close to that as you can factoring in age and so forth so I think there are the three elements there's the, the moulding, the fixing, the rediscovering and normally as a trainer You've got two out of those three. Most have one. Not many people on earth have three. And these are the things we forget sometimes. I think in Britain we try and do everything. And we can't do everything. You've got to know what your lane is. But you've also got to know what your limitations are. And you've got to be brave enough to take people on board with you. People who can benefit. So, like I said, going back to the McCracken example... I can see why you'd have Joby and Angel in there because their job's not to be head trainers. Their job is to provide very specific elements to the overall mix. So what Angel does in camp with Joshua is not a reflection of what Angel does as a trainer in his own right. You know, in the same way that, you know, as trainers get older, they'll just get guys in to do the pads. And that's perfectly acceptable. Some guys like to do it themselves, some guys don't. Um, I see Shane McGuigan with his elbows wrapped up now and I wonder how long he can keep doing pads with everyone before he then has to bring someone in because obviously he's got Josh Pritchard who he's bringing along but if I'm Josh I want to see other camps and other ideas not out of disloyalty but 
I want to make sure that I'm contributing something different to the mix as well. Until we get to this stage where we accept that a coach's education will determine a boxer's education, not the other way around. Until we get to that stage, we're never going to move forward as a boxing nation. That's my concern. And it's exemplified. You look at the Eastern Europeans and they've got their lane mastered. And you look at the Cubans, they've got their lane mastered. Even in Africa, you're starting to see that development as more ideas are coming into Africa around boxing. They're able to exploit their raw materials better in terms of like the fighters they have available to create something special. And I'm hoping in the next 10 to 15 years, you'll start to see African nations you know, ascending to the medal positions in the Olympics a lot more often. But this is all down to, like I said, coaching education. Like, it's not enough to just go on these courses. You've got to be around the old veterans and you've got to go to different countries and see different things. And then you've got to work out what that means for you as an individual trainer. And I don't think we're there yet. I just don't think we are. I think that's probably a sensible point to draw a line under this and to say thanks for tuning in. It's something I wanted to do. Um, I thought when Kel said it, it was interesting. And like, this is the anniversary of Mix passing so it's a it's a poignant day for me i know it's a poignant day for some other trainers like eddie trav adam roy mick marky rygate you know the whole the whole gang simon linton all you know all the guys who have gone off and tried to develop mixed legacy and we've all tried to then understand what boxing means for us and i think one thing we all hold in common is we don't fall below certain standards. And that's one thing I do like about British coaching. There's certain standards we don't fall below. And that keeps us strong and that keeps our fighters respected. But now what we need to do is build on that and take it to another level. But guys, thanks for tuning in. And I will catch you on the next episode. Take care.